And all you have to do, it'll just take a second, take a deep breath or two so that you can remember that this next patient is the star of the show. Whatever you're doing in the last room, running behind, people in the waiting room, phone calls waiting for you, doesn't matter. Patient is the star of the show. Take a deep breath and it'll help to remind you that they're the star of the show. It'll make the visit more fulfilling for them. It'll make the visit shorter. They'll know from the beginning that you have their undivided attention because you will have their undivided attention and it'll make it more fulfilling for you. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. This episode is being sponsored by Veritas. Veritas offers virtual alcohol, drug, and trauma treatment programs exclusively for licensed medical professionals. Their programs provide a concierge level of care consisting of evidence-based clinical treatment and are customized to meet the unique needs and challenges of physicians, dentists, pharmacists, and nurses struggling with substance abuse. Having worked with licensed medical professionals struggling with substance abuse since 1976, Veritas understands how extremely difficult it can be to ask for help because of how severe the stigma is in the medical community around mental health and how real the fear is of a potential repercussions from colleagues if found out. Their virtual confidential platform provides the safety and security medical professionals need to get help while continuing to work. Confidential, convenient, and compassionate, Veritas brings world-class treatment to your home or office. To learn more about Veritas, you can visit www.veritassolutions.com. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. Today, I am blessed to have another great guest. Today, my guest is Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Block is an otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon in Long Island, New York, and a partner at Ears, Nose, and Throat and Allergy Associates. He's also a fellow podcaster. Brad created the very successful Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. I subscribe to it, and I can tell you that it is engaging, informative, and he interviews physicians and non-physician experts to help teach us, as he says, what we should have been learning while we were busy memorizing the Krebs cycle. The Physician's Guide to Doctoring is a practical guide for practicing physicians, physicians in training, and all allied health professionals but I would argue that it is equally as important to patients who want to be informed. Topics range from personal finance to politics to improving interactions with patients. Dr. Block graduated medical school at SUNY Buffalo, where he graduated with research honors. He went on to complete his residency in ears, nose, and throat at Georgetown. Brad lives with his wife and three young sons in Long Island, where he enjoys surfing, skiing, smoking meat, exercising, throwing his sons across the pool, and finding any excuse to quote an 80s movie. Well, welcome, Brad. Thanks for coming today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. I'm excited to speak with you as well. Well, Tony, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you and I have so much in common. I talked about it in the introduction. 
but I can't move on until I ask you about the 80s movie thing. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to tell you mine. Well, first of all, tell me what your favorite 80s movie. I'm a Star Wars kid. Like okay. I grew up with all the action figures and everything. So it would have to be Return of the Jedi. As much as that's not my favorite Star Wars movie, you know, I was four when it came out. So I guess that's my best 80s movie. And you said 80s line. So what's your favorite line? Conan the Barbarian, James Earl Jones character. I am the wellspring from which you flow. <laughs> Nobody's going to get that. Nobody's going to get that. But if you've never seen Conan the Barbarian directed by Oliver Stone or maybe produced by Oliver Stone, but his name isn't on it. Okay. I'm going to tell you my, mine is Arthur, the movie Arthur. I, I think that's the eighties. My favorite line ever is she's the princess of a very small country. It's terribly small, tiny little country. Rhode Island could beat the crap out of it in a war. That's how small it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my roommates and I at college used to watch Arthur and repeat all the lines or say all the lines before they even say it. So I had to get that out of the way. The second thing I have to get out of the way is you're Long Island. I'm New Jersey. Are you Jets and Mets or Giants and Yankees? 80s again. So growing up with the 86 Mets, I have to be a Mets fan and you know, more of Giants than Jets by default. Although okay, that being said, please don't ask me any sports trivia because 1986 <laughs> was really the last time I watched organized sports, except for the Super Bowl we just saw. Okay, great. All right. Which was a great Super Bowl. I'm down in Florida and uh, Tampa Bay. So it's a big deal down here. So, oh, yeah. so, okay. So that's enough of fun. Let's move on. Cause I really want to talk about your podcast. There's so much to learn from your podcast. And I think what's really interesting about the podcast is that it's about as you say, what we should have been learning when we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. And I think your podcast is great, not only for doctors and allied health, but it's also very important to patients because they need to know what's going on in doctors' lives. You know, I looked this up the other day, according to 2019 statistics, there's 985,000 active physicians in the United States and 350 million individuals. So that just goes to show you that ratio. And most patients don't realize all the other stuff that's going on in a doctor's life. I mean, we have so much going on and your podcast has several themes. And one of the great things about being a podcast host that I found is that I learned so much. That's why I love podcasts. I learn from listening to them. I'm always listening to podcasts, whether I'm going to work or driving for a long drive, because it's like free education, right? I mean, how could you turn that down? That's why I love podcasts so much. But I'm learning from all my guests and there's always these common themes that come up. And now my podcast every other week is one's healthcare, one's business, but the same words keep coming up. And I talk about this all the time in my podcast, trust, relationships, burnout. These words are all coming in. And when I listen to your podcast, and I look at themes, you had several episodes on each one of these. So these are difficult conversations that we have to have with ourselves and they're conversations about physicians. And that's why I was so happy when you agreed to come on the show. So let's pick a few topics, if you don't mind, and let's just, you know, I'll let you just talk about what you've learned through the conversations with your guests on each one of these topics. And the number one topic that we have to talk about is physician well-being, because that's what we all should care about, whether you're a physician or allied health or a patient. No one wants a patient who's burnt out. And you've done several episodes on physician well-being. So just tell us a little bit about what you've learned from those episodes and from those guests. Well, so there's a lot of discussion about physician burnout specifically. There's, I guess, an epidemic of physician burnout, but it's often described in different ways. And yet there are burnout scales. There are things that psychiatrists use, scales that psychiatrists use to 
measure burnout and define burnout. And I think the psychologist's name, maybe psychiatrist Christina Maslach, Maslach scale, the way Dr. Maslach described burnout was there are really three issues. There's depersonalization. So for us as physicians, we're going to stop caring as much about the patients that we take care of. And so this is important because it's important for patients and patient safety that it's in the patient's best interest for burnout not to be happening because it affects them. So depersonalization is one issue. Another is emotional exhaustion. And this is not something that's unique to physicians. In many professions, you know, you get home to your family, your kids, you're exhausted, but emotional exhaustion is a little different, especially in a specialty like yours, where you have so many small children that are just teetering on the brink and sometimes patients die and you have to be able to come to work the next day. And so having things in place that can help us to deal with that and manage that and and grieve appropriately. So depersonalization, emotional exhaustion. And then the last one is the lack of personal accomplishment. And one of my earlier episodes was with Sanj Katyal, who's a radiologist, and he is all about positive psychology. And he's a radiologist. And so one of the problems that radiologists have, as much as they might have nice hours and can look at their screens from the beach or whatever the rest of us who are patient facing, you know, imagine what a radiologist's life is like, you know, they're just grinding through their images with no sense of what's happening to the patient. So that sense of personal accomplishment, they're really detached from what happens to the patients. Whereas with us who are patient facing, we get to see that when patients are doing better. And so those three issues depersonalization, emotional exhaustion, and lack of personal accomplishment are all part of that burnout syndrome. And so whenever we're talking about it, I think it's critical. And whenever addressing it, I think it's critical that those three things be addressed. And so whenever there's some proposed remedy for burnout at your institution, you need to ask the question, which of these three things is it addressing? And if it's not addressing any of those things, then you need to have a difficult conversation with those who are proposing that you do whatever it is that they want you to do and find out how it's addressing that. They might have a totally reasonable answer to it. They might have a plan. They might have an agenda. They just, you know, you're not sure how it works in there. So I think it's important to ask the question in such a way more out of curiosity. And I forget which one of my episodes where we talked about that, like if you're ever going to question a superior, because medicine's very hierarchical, make sure it's done in a curious way rather than a cynical and aggressive way. There's a point right there for the first communication technique. I I learned from one of my guests when they're explaining to you how to discuss a problem with a superior, a great phrase is help me understand. Help me understand why we decided to go this way, which is exactly what you just said. Come from the point of view, like not that you're wrong, but help me understand. In one of the hospitals that I taught at, they had this big chart for physician. It was really for nurses burnout. And it was this kind of like tic-tac-toe chart. And it said, these are the things that you should do if you feel burnt out. And it was things like meditation, exercise more, get more sleep. And I was walking by and I heard a couple of nurses joking, saying, if I had the time to do all that, I wouldn't have been burned out in the first place. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a catch-22, right? It's very easy to say, don't work so much. But The thing about physician burnout, which is really interesting, is that to the average person who doesn't stop to think about it, is that they think, well, you know, I'm not going to feel sorry for doctors. They make good money. They're working all the time. They live in these big houses. So why should I feel sorry for a doctor that works too much? And the answer is you really shouldn't accept that that's the last person you want to be treating you, right? You don't, so you should care about it because 
We know that, as you talked about compassion fatigue, it happens after you get burned out. And I do a whole lecture on that. But your doctor's tired. He or she doesn't think of you as a real person. They start to distance themselves. The next thing you know, what goes up? Medical errors. I don't necessarily agree. I don't think the onus should be on patients to solve physician burnout. I think the onus is on physicians. And this is something that I talked about in my episode with Jack Cochran, who used to run Kaiser. He wrote a couple books on leadership. And so the question that I posed to him is exactly what you said. The nurses were saying, I have no time. I have no time. How could I possibly be on another committee? How could I possibly join some other leadership committee? I'm already spread so thin. And the answer is because if you don't, someone else will. And so the onus is on us to solve our problems. Personally, I think in some ways this can help address burnout because it's like man's search for meaning. One of my Mm -hmm. favorite books, if you're feeling this despair, yet you're working towards solving the problems that are causing it, I think there's something to that. And so another episode with Linda Morsky, who talks about quitting, one thing that we do in medicine is we say yes to everything. If you think back to when you were in high school, you were on every committee, you played every sport, you were (laughs) in every club, and you had time for all that because that's all you were doing. And then you went to college and presumably did the same thing. And then you went to med school and you were on all sorts of leadership positions and clubs. And I'm sure you had extracurricular activities. So every step of the way, we just end up saying yes to everything. And we get so used to saying yes to everything that this is something else that's contributing to our emotional exhaustion because now we've finished our day rounding in the NICU and we'd like to go home and see our family or play poker with our friends or a pickup game of something, but we can't because we've got that committee meeting. We've got that other meeting. We've got that project. We got to write that paper because every time we always say yes. And the answer is no. The answer needs to be no. The answer needs to be, unless the answer is hell yes, then the answer needs to be no. And that's actually something that I did in my life recently is I quit everything. I quit all these different committees that I was on in my practice. Not like I was doing that much compared to some people, but I was certainly doing more than some as well because I was just finding myself spread too thin and my family was paying for it or my practice was paying for it. And I wasn't willing to give up the podcast. So if there wasn't something that I was going to say heck yes to, then the answer was going to be no. And so if you're finding, and this is where it gets to finding the time to do the things that you really are passionate about. And if you're finding that you're in despair because of the way the hospital is running X or the hospital is running Y, then you need to be part of the solution. And that's going to help you. Again, man, search for meaning by finding use in it. It's going to help your recovery. And then the question is, how do you go about doing that? How do you even get your foot in the door? And, uh, you know, Jack Cochran again, and then another guest, Sandy Scott, where we talked about the keys to the C-suite. How do you get into the C-suite? And the answer is what you talk a lot about is relationships. You got to build those relationships. How do you build those relationships? You talk to people. And so your job to become leader isn't necessarily going to be the one that has all the ideas because there are plenty of ideas out there. But what you need to do is maybe you need to become the conduit of communication between different teams. You need to be able to form teams. You have to be able to create allies. And that comes to communications. And one thing I know that I'm terrible at is if I'm in the hospital and I'm rounding 
I make a beeline for the patient, go in the chart, write my note, and get the heck out of there because I want to go home. But if you want to be in a leadership position in that hospital, you need to be chatting everybody up. It's not a waste of time when you see someone in the hallway and you start chatting to them. That is relationship building. That person is going to therefore be more likely to trust you. They're more likely to tell you what they think is going on. Then you can use that to your advantage to work with them. And this is how you're going to work towards changing things within your health system, within your hospital, so that you can make it a better place for everybody. So you know, I don't think the onus is on the patients to create the change that we need. The onus is on us. And I think it starts with saying no, everything else. And then it's yes to the few things that you're passionate about that you really want to see change because they're affecting you so much. Well, there's so much there to unpack. I mean, one of the things that you said that really hit home is something that you're passionate about. Some people think that it has to do with how much free time you have. To be happy, you don't need free time. Yes, of course, my family's important to me. I want to be home with the kids. As you said, throw your throw your kids across the pool. You like to do that. But if you are passionate about it, it's not work, right? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, as yeah. they say. You said, I wasn't willing to give up the podcast. That's something that you enjoy, you're passionate about. You and I both know this podcast has a lot of work. We really get nothing out of it. But I'm very inquisitive. I love to learn from people like you and from my other guests. I feel like I'm providing a service. There's people listening. I'm teaching people. Communication is something I'm excited about. I'll take a couple of days vacation and fly out to go give a lecture in Portland and do a workshop for very little money and you know be on the red eye coming home and then work the next day. But it doesn't burn me out because I'm passionate about it. Now, I'm not a committee person. I don't like to sit in a meeting. My ADD probably gets the best of me in these meetings where I'm fidgeting all over the place. And I'm sitting at some of these committee meetings and I'm going, didn't we talk about this six times, six weeks ago and five weeks ago and four weeks ago and three weeks ago? That's not me. I'm a doer. And so when I've asked to be in leadership positions, I've taken some of them, but I had to make that choice, like you said. So do I want to continue on this leadership path and be the guy who goes to the meetings all the time? Or do I want to do my podcast, fly out to Portland, do a workshop on communication? And the answer is, that's what I want to do. And I think what you said is so important. You can't do everything. And, you know, in high school, you're right. You do try to do everything. And sooner or later, your parents might say to you, you know, they said this to me, Tony, you can't play three sports. Like, you know, you want to get into college, you know, pick two, pick one. My oldest one used to play a football game when he was in seventh and eighth grade. And then I would clean him up and then take them to the baseball game. You know, after a while, you say, this is crazy. You, you have to pick. So I think that's really the big message that you mentioned right there is you got to be happy what you're doing. Yes. If you're not passionate about it, if it's not a heck yes, then it's just a no. You can't please everybody. And you got to start off with pleasing yourself. Yeah. It's been a common misconception. I talk about this during my workshops, a common misconception that what happens is the compassion fatigue follows the burnout. And more and more data is coming out now, and I've spoken to a few people about this, that really it's the opposite that what happens. So what happens is that if you can prevent the compassion fatigue from happening, you'll prevent the burnout. And so what I mean by that is I talk about it in some of my lectures. For you, the patient's always there. So for me, I have yeah. to pick up the phone. I got to find the mother or I go downstairs and speak to the mother who's, who's in labor and delivery. But maybe I don't have these meaningful communications with the mother because I'm really busy. I see the baby. I write for the hyperal. And I'm off. But then I go home and, you know, maybe I've done a really great job, but I feel empty. 
communication is my thing. I'm a person who just loves relationships. And then I go home going, you know, and you know what happens to me? It happens at night when I'm getting ready to go to bed going, damn it, I forgot to speak to that mom. Or I told her I would call her back and I didn't call her back. And now it's 11 o'clock and I'm calling the nurses up going, that mother come in and she's Dr. Rashini, it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, yeah, but is she there? Because I feel really bad. So if you're enjoying being a doctor, I'm not going to say 100%, but I think you'll be a little more resistant to it. But when you get caught up in all these committees and how many different tests do we have to take, Brad? It's getting a little crazy. Oh, it's preposterous. It's preposterous. And if you have privileges at different hospitals, a lot of times it's redundant. I mean, listen, I'm all for education about sexual harassment, but I had to take it for my practice. I had to take it for one hospital. I had to take it for another hospital. And they're all asking the same thing. One should really be able to apply to all of them. And my favorite is, though, is a course on burnout to prevent burnout, right? Because it's the course <laughs> that's, you know, wasting my time and preventing me from going home. But you were talking earlier about that personal connection, how important it is. And I realized that I had mentioned Sanj Katyal, the radiologist, and never actually talked about what he does with his radiologists, which is he recommends that, you know, every so often they reach out to a physician by phone to give them the results. Because they're so disconnected from the patient care that one thing that, that he found improved their quality of life is that personal connection. You know, tell me a little bit about the patient. Okay, this is what I'm seeing. This is how I think it'll contribute to management. You know, what are you thinking in terms of management? And then you've got a little bit of connection. You got a little bit of story. And then you see how the patient has benefited from your reading the scan. That's an interesting point. You know, radiologists, for those of you out there who are maybe in academic medicine or we do the same thing, we do these radiology rounds once a week. For those of you not in medicine, radiologist sits in this really dark room and then we'll bring the residents down once a week on Tuesday to go over the week's films with the radiologist. And tell me if I'm wrong, Brad, but the radiologist lights up like, oh, people, yeah. I, have, <laughs> Goodness, <yeah. laughs> I have seven people and they're all listening to me speak. And so I think that's really a great opinion there. I like that. Well, they love what they do. It's kind of like us. I liken it to being in love. When you're in love, you want to tell everybody about that person and how wonderful they are and how wonderfully you're doing. And I think most of us feel that way about our specialties. We're super excited to talk to people about it. So you get down in there with a radiologist who's had not much personal connection, except for the person that's looking at their scans in the little cubby hole next door. And they're excited to tell you what they're passionate about. You know, one of the things I talk about when, when I speak about patient experience and do some workshops and I'm doing a workshop for a major university about multidisciplinary and how we can make each other get along with each other. They have issues with their doctors and the nurses and different specialties not getting along with each other. And we talk about banter and how that makes a big deal for ears, nose and throat doctor. You know, you go into the OR and you see the, the nurse at the receptionist spending a few minutes asking her, you know, calling her by name, asking her about our kids, complaining about your own kids. That's called banter that builds relationships. And they're like, oh, Dr. Block, he's a pretty cool guy. It, it makes all the difference in the world, but it's also what the radiologists generally don't get as much. I'm sure that he talked about that, but it's also really important for us not to be laser focused on, I got to get to the OR, I'm running late. Because when you go home, you'll be more excited about what you did and you'll be happier what you do. Yeah, and that's how I, you're going to get referrals too. Yeah, Like if right? you're looking to build a practice chat everyone up, chat everyone up. They're more likely to remember you and they're more likely to send you patients because everyone is going to ask their neighbor who works at the hospital, who the best ear, nose and throat, ophthalmologist, neurosurgeon. I mean, I guess people, I guess maybe people see find neurosurgeons that way. 
not just through the trauma bay, but you know, that's how they get referrals. So it's going to help to build for all the newer physicians out there. If you just move, that's going to help to build your practice. It's not in the doctor's lounge because the doctors have their referral patterns and they're set and meeting this new person in the area is not going to cause them to change their referral patterns from the person that they were already sending to. The things that that's going to cause them to change is when the nurse ends up sending their neighbor to you and the neighbor then goes back to their primary care physician and said, I just saw the best ophthalmologist ever. And they keep hearing that over and over. And then they're going to start sending their patients to you. So you're not going to convince them, but their patients are going to convince them. And that's how you move the tide towards you. And that's why patient experience, patient satisfaction scores, HCAPs, whatever you want to call them, they are just extremely important today. Most people do go to the doctors through referrals. There's one statistic that I saw for every $4 that you spend on marketing for talking about hospitals now is equal to only $1 spent on patient experience. So you can put up all the bulletin boards you want. You can do 12 commercials a night. But most people are going to ask their neighbor, hey, how was Dr. Block? Now, you know, there's thousands of ENT people that could do a particular procedure that you do. But what are they going to say? Go to him. He's really nice. He was great. He took the time to speak with me. And that's how they get the referrals because that's what people really want. And I think you did a podcast episode. I can't remember who it was that you were speaking to, but he or she was talking about the same thing about just people want a few minutes of your time, you know, and that's all they really care about. And it doesn't take time to do that. It only takes a minute or so. And so I think it's a really important lesson for young physicians out there to take a few times. You did an episode on humor at one point and how humor is uh, really helpful. Yeah. Scott Dickers, the founder of The Onion. I have no idea how I managed to get the founder of The Onion on my show to talk about humor, but I did. And so we talked about Well, one of the things he ended with, I thought was great. I said, let's say your doctor was listening. What would you want your doctor to know about humor? And he said, don't try and be funny. It's my (laughs) job to be funny. I'm the funny one. I just want you to laugh at my jokes. So, and and I think that's without realizing what he was doing there, I think it's important. The patient's the star of the show. You're not the star of the show. So it's important to make them laugh, but it's even more important that if they're making jokes that you laugh at their jokes because again, they're the star. They're the star. You're not the star. He did make a couple of points. If you have like a failed joke, you know, we all of our sticks, we all see the same things over and over. And we find ourselves saying the same things over and over. And so my shtick has changed or it evolves. And so it's kind of like a stand-up comedian who tries something one night and it doesn't work. And so they change it a little and try it the next night. Then maybe it works a little better. But let's say you try a joke and it bombs. You need to be ready for that. And so one thing that you can do, it's, it's an easy one, is just, oh man, I'm glad I'm in medicine and not in, in comedy. <laughs> so something self-deprecating. However, self-deprecating humor is great. Just don't make it about your skills as a physician. Because if you start denigrating your skills, then they're not going to trust you. So you can deprecate how you like don't run on time or you like, it, it can't be about competency but never, ever make the joke at the patient's expense. And that's something that's true in the exam room, when the patient's asleep in the operating room, on social media. I think what he said was, the function of humor is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And so you have to know who in this relationship is the afflicted. It's the patient. And who's the comfortable? It's the hospital system. It's the pharmaceutical company. It's the, it can never be a joke that is going to undermine trust, but at the same time, 
you're comforting the afflicted, but you never inflict the inflicted. So it's, it's important to think about that if you're ever telling a joke. And for doctors, it's okay to tell dad humor, right? We're both dads. You know, those yes. completely horrible fall flat jokes. It's fine. It's fine. It's not fine for a stand-up comedian to do that. So if you want to use hokey jokes, it's totally fine because it's really going to soften things. As pediatricians, we do that with the kids. The children come in and it's funny when I did pediatrics, you, you say a dad joke and same age kid, one kid will laugh and the other kid will look at you. What are you, an idiot? Like that, <laughs> you know, so, And you, you got to know your age, right? Say yeah. a dad joke to a junior high school girl. She's not going to laugh. She doesn't think it's very funny. <laughs> That's got to be a tough audience, though. That's like, a tough audience for parents. Yeah, any teenager is going to be a tough audience. I'm sorry, I'm going to turn the interview around on you. Do you have any go-to jokes for different situations? You know, I don't have a lot of jokes with the parents, but what I do is, and you talked about self-deprecating, it's not really self-deprecating, but to be a genuine person, I, I talk about that all the time when I give workshops on patient experience. They want their doctor to be a genuine person. So I will do what I did to you, you know, find out where you're from, especially nowadays where people keep their same area code. So they oh, might be- cell phone, in, yeah. Yeah, so they have their cell phone. And if I see a 973 or 212, I know that's New Jersey, 718. I know where that's from. And so I talk about finding commonality. I do a lot of sports stuff. I do a lot of sports analogies. Sometimes that works. It's obviously not going to work with a mom who obviously is not into sports. But I try to For be me. a genuine person. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, you're into surfing. That's a sport. So yeah, yeah. I try to be a genuine person. You know, I'll say things like, gee, you know, last night my car broke down. Or, you know, if you have younger children, you know, I was up so late last night, my daughter couldn't do her homework. We were up to 11 o'clock. And, you know, physicians have said to me, oh, don't tell them you were up late last night. You might think, no, they know that you're a real person. And you go from Dr. Orsini to Dr. Orsini from New York who likes the Giants. And that makes all the difference in the world. So I don't use humor a lot, except that when I'm trying to just be genuine. And now with nurses and respiratory therapists, we joke all the time, you yeah. know, and I think that's the best advice I can give to a young doctor is if you want the nurses and the ancillary staff to really be happy when you walk in the door, then take a minute to do that banter and make some jokes with them. There's stuff that I can't think of any now, but there's stuff on Facebook all the time that comes up and you got to make sure, as you know, today in, in the woke community, you got to make sure that it's perfect. One recent one someone put on Facebook, I saw and I showed it to my friends and the nurses it was a man standing in, in the woods and he was screaming and the caption was, if a man says something in the woods and no one hears it, is he still wrong? And, <laughs> and so, and, you know, make little jokes about that. So that, that's my go-to kind of stuff like that. So, Oh yeah. And don't buy them donuts. I mean, you can buy them donuts, but much better than buying them donuts, knowing their names, yeah. knowing their spouse's name, knowing their kid's name knowing the town that they live in, knowing their interests, knowing things about them that you can ask them about, that it's not the same thing every day. Am I amazing at this? Absolutely not. I am not. I am not. But I'm going to keep trying. And my kids are one and a half, three and four and a half. So, you know, we watch a lot of Daniel Tiger. Just keep trying. You'll get better. So just put the effort in, put the effort in. And that's going to be much more appreciated. If you know who they are, you care about who they are, that's going to go a long way. And, you know, to what you said about humor, you know, you're in the NICU with two and a half pound babies with all sorts of monitors on them and intubated with feeding tubes. For me, it's a lot easier to make jokes because I'm an ENT doing mostly outpatient stuff. I'm taking out earwax and 
you know, nasal polyps and snoring and deviated septums and tonsils and adenoids and ear tubes, my patients aren't critically ill. So it's much easier for me to make jokes. So it's, it's important to know your audience. When you said how younger kids are, I did think of a, a go-to joke that I use all the time. When the baby's getting better and you're getting ready to go home and the kid is so cute, you give them a compliment. You say, the baby's so beautiful. Look how quiet he or she is. And then I'll say, enjoy it now because in 15 years, he's going to be a teenager or <laughs> she's going to be a teenager. And I've gone through three of those already. It's not fun, but I promise you when they're 22, they'll love you again. <laughs> and so everybody kind of jokes about that. So Well, that's and that's also nice for them because they had a kid who was just critically ill. And now you're like, you've got this life in front of you now. That's a much deeper statement because it's not just joking about how difficult teenagers can be. You're going to be like, you're going to have a teenager one day. Like, how amazing is that? That's amazing. And the doctor's a real person because he didn't have the key to teenagers either. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. when it happens to me, it's not going to happen. So yeah, you had some, I just want to finish up with, uh, you had Blake Eastman on. Yes. Talked about nonverbal communication and that's my thing. So I was fascinated and he talked about interest and authority. And when I give lectures on Breaking Bad News, I always say the three goals of Breaking Bad News is to be compassionate, which he calls interest. Authority to be the expert in the room is part two. And then the third goal is I'm, I'm not going to leave you. But he had some great comments about the way you smile and telehealth and how difficult that was. That was fascinating. Yeah. So he's interesting because he's a poker player and he does his own research on nonverbal communication. And a lot of the things that we think about nonverbal communication, he thinks aren't necessarily true, but there are a couple of points. Yeah, so interest and authority. Those are the two things that he thought were key to nonverbal communication. And authority, you express through the tone of your voice. And interest is your facial expressions. And so you need to be aware of that stuff because we're not necessarily as aware of it as we should be. And a point that he made is you need to be authentic. So you can't make this stuff up, but at the same time, you can still neglect these things if you're not concentrating on them, if you're not practiced at it. You can be interested, you can be the authority, but you can be not expressing it. So you can't make it up, but at the same time, you can neglect it. So it's important. And so with regards to the interest, the fact that we're wearing masks is not as big a deal as we would think. If you're in the ICU and you're in a papper, or you've got your face shield and your goggles and your mask, so if you're completely obscured, that's going to be a problem. But for those of us who might have goggles and N95, the patients can still see your eyes. And so that's where most of the nonverbal cues are going to be with regards to interest. They're going to be surrounded around your eyes. And so nodding is not as acknowledging as you would think it is. So if you're talking to someone, they're just nodding over and over. It's not clear whether they're actually paying attention. Squinting appears more engaging than nodding. And so if you're really squinting to pay attention to a patient, that's going to go a long way for them to recognize. Again, you're not fooling them. You're not trying to make them think you're interested for them to recognize that you're actually interested. And then with regards to the authority, yeah, your vocal tonality really does matter. And so us being from the Northeast, that doesn't always convey, you know, we end up sounding like Jerry Seinfeld sometimes where everything <laughs> we say, I don't know, it kind of <laughs> sounds like a question. And so it's important to end things on the down note with more of an exclamation than a question, as in the Northeast, we have a tendency to do. And then with regards to telehealth, the main issue is where to position your camera, because you can align the vertical, but you can't align the horizontal. So at least make sure that the vertical is 
aligned so the patient can see you at least looking at them in one dimension. Yeah, that's really important. And yeah, body language and some people don't like to call that nonverbal communication is so important. 70, somewhere between 70 to 80% of language is nonverbal. And you can use your nonverbal language to manipulate people or maybe manipulate is not a good word, but to get people to really realize that you are caring and you're compassionate and there are certain things that you can do consciously with your nonverbal language, but not everybody's an expert in nonverbal language. So what I say is use the word imagine that I think you mentioned it in one of your podcasts, actually take the time before you open that door, take a deep breath, take a second. As my colleague says, take your own pulse. Imagine what it's like to be this patient. He or she's been waiting in the office for 45 minutes. And I know this is your 30th patient of the day, but this is his or her only visit. So take a minute to imagine, be compassionate. And most of the time, if you do that, your subconscious will take over and your nonverbal communication will be appropriate. Does it hurt to learn? No. Amy Cuddy, do you know Amy Cuddy? Yeah, with the uh, superhero stance. Yes. Yes, exactly. So Amy Cuddy wrote in her book, that just standing in front of a mirror with your arms out right before you go to a job interview can not only make you do better in the job interview, but also she measured testosterone and cortisol levels and found that the people that stood in front of that mirror just for a few minutes had higher testosterone levels and lower cortisol levels, which meant they weren't as nervous and they were more confident. And so if you're out there and you're saying, gee, I don't know anything about nonverbal language, and Blake Eastman, I think, mentions this, just take it a minute to imagine and you should be okay. Yeah, there were a couple of people actually that that had mentioned that. One of my first episodes with the Jason Harris, the patient experience advisor for a hospital in upstate New York, and then Oscar Trimboli, who, who talks about deep listening. Both of them said the same thing, different iterations, but ultimately, before you go into the patient's room, and again, I practice outpatient medicine, so this is my experience. I open a door. It's you know different in the NICU where everyone's in, the, in one big room. Stop and take a deep breath or two deep breaths or three deep breaths. And the easy thing to do if they're your rooms is put a little piece of tape on the door, just a little colored piece of tape. This is my own thing. That way you remember to do it because you need a cue. You need a cue in order to make it a habit. And this is another, you know, I have a couple of episodes on developing new habits. We won't get into that. But if you put this little piece of colored tape on the door, it'll remind you to do that. And all you have to do, it'll just take a second, take a deep breath or two so that you can remember that this next patient is the start of the show. Whatever you're doing in the last room, running behind, people in the waiting room, phone calls waiting for you, doesn't matter. Patient is the star of the show. Take a deep breath and it'll help to remind you that they're the star of the show. It'll make the visit more fulfilling for them. It'll make the visit shorter. They'll know from the beginning that you have their undivided attention because you will have their undivided attention and it'll make it more fulfilling for you and them. That is the best lesson of the day, that it will make it shorter because that's the biggest misconception is that if you sit down and don't multitask, you'll get out there a lot later and you're going to get home six, seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. When the reality is, I always say, your mother was right. Do it right the first time and you'll <laughs> save time. How many things come back to what our moms told us? So this has been great, Brad. I can talk to you all day long. I have about another 10 topics that I wanted to discuss. We might have to have you back on, but I think the key to all this is it's back to communication, conversations about things during your podcast. The, the physician burnout is such an important conversation. I finish every podcast asking the same question. I warned you about this. What's the most difficult conversation that you have either had specifically or type of conversation? And please leave the audience with some little pearls from that, how you navigated that. 
you know, I said earlier, most of the stuff that I deal with in my practice isn't really grave, but, you know, periodically I do diagnose patients with cancer, thyroid cancer, which tends to be not so aggressive, but sometimes throat cancer, different head and neck cancers. And so uh, my conversation is certainly going to change now because I interviewed Dr. Orsina on my show. And so we <laughs> talked about right. breaking bad news. And so, you know, I learned from him that I can be more methodical about it. But for me, those conversations, it was always important that two things. One, there's no ambiguity. Use the word cancer. Don't use the word tumor. Don't use the word malignancy. Use the word cancer. The patient needs to leave there knowing that they have cancer. They can't leave there not being sure what the doctor was talking about. I think it's cancer. I'm not sure. What does that mean? And then knowing what the next step is, knowing that they're going to be looked after, knowing that I'm available. I mean, mostly I'm not managing this. I'm sending them to a comprehensive cancer center, but knowing that the person that I'm sending them to is someone that I know very well and trust and would go to them myself and a written plan of what steps they need to do and that knowing that I'm available for them. But I think the critical part of that is knowing that they're going to be looked after and knowing that they have cancer, no ambiguity. That's a great point. And writing it down, because after you say that C word, as it's called, now they only retain about 10% of what you say afterwards. So writing it down, I think is really key. I just interviewed somebody on child abuse and he is a forensic interviewer. So he's the one who has to tell people that their daughter has been sexually abused or their son has been physically abused or whatever. And one of the pearls that he taught me is he said, when I'm training forensic interviewers, they always ask me, how long should this take? And my answer is however long it takes. And I think that's really important when you're talking about telling cancer. If, if it takes 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, and your people are backing up, this is the most important thing you're probably going to do that day. So you want to make sure you get it right. And then when you're done with it and you're moving on to the next patient, stop, take that deep breath, collect yourself, because that next patient's now the star of the show. I love the piece of tape advice. That's a great piece of advice. So if I ever get an office, I'm going to use that. I like that. So, <laughs> well, Brad, thanks so much for coming on. This has been really great. As I said, we can talk for hours. I appreciate you having me on your podcast and I'm looking forward for this one to drop so that my audience can benefit from all the conversations that you've had. Again, tell us about how they can get to the podcast. It's available on every format or most formats. Yeah. I mean, every format that I'm aware of that exists, you can okay. find it there. If you can't seem to find it, you just go to physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. That's my website. You can listen to the episodes there. I'm on Twitter at Physicians Guide. I just joined Instagram, although I'm not very active. My wife's been helping with that at Physicians Guide and then on Facebook at Physicians Guide to Doctoring. So just look up Physicians Guide to Doctoring. You'll be able to find it anywhere and share it with your friends. Tony, this has been great. A lot of fun talking to you. Again, we really have so much in common. We're passionate about most of the same things. We could just have an entire podcast of the two of us going on each other's shows. So it's been great. I love the questions and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. As, as I say all the time, I'm meeting so many great people and some of them, I really can say most of them that I can call my friends. And I feel like you and I would uh, be very happy together just sitting back and having a few beers. So Absolutely. this has been a pleasure. I will put all of your information on the show notes. So if you're driving, don't stop and pull over. We'll put everything there. Everybody will be able to get in touch with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead, hit and subscribe and download. Tell your friends. If you want to find out more about the Orsini Way, you can reach me at theorsiniway.com. Brad, thanks again. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Tony. 
This episode was brought to you by Veritas. Veritas offers virtual alcohol, drug, and trauma treatment programs exclusively for licensed medical professionals. Their programs provide a concierge level of care consisting of evidence-based clinical treatment and are customized to meet the unique needs and challenges of physicians, dentists, pharmacists, and nurses struggling with substance abuse. Their virtual confidential platform provides the safety and security medical professionals need to get help while continuing to work. Confidential, convenient, and compassionate, Veritas brings world-class treatment to your home or office. Contact Veritas for help at VeritasSolutions.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.